It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning and welcome into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. Now we're going for the next two hours until 11 a.m. Eastern on this Monday morning. Hopefully everyone had a great weekend. Hopefully everyone had a great Mother's Day. Hopefully you treated your mother um, at least for one day uh, the right way and everyone enjoyed a, uh, a fun Sunday with the family and with your mom. A belated happy Mother's Day to my mom. Hopefully, uh, we uh, we treated her well yesterday. Unfortunately, the rain didn't help, but, you know, what are you going to do? You can only control so much. But hopefully, at least if you're tuning in this morning, we welcome you starting your week with us right here. And hopefully, it's coming off of a fun and enjoyable weekend. As a reminder, we're coming to you live, as we always are, from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Check out Big Italy Pizzeria uh, in person in Medford. Easy for me to say. Joe's Pizzeria in Bayshore. Classic New York Pizza Joint also in Bayshore or online at BigItalyPizza.com. After a week away, some housework going on, we are back in the main studio. Feels good to be back. Feels comfortable to be back in uh, in our known surroundings, if you will. Very excited for the next two hours because we have a lot to get into here. The NBA regular season is down to the final week. We have made it. One final week to go before the plane starts next week. A lot of questions, but even before we start to look ahead towards the playoffs, and before we start to break down potential matchups and who's going to be in the playing game and who's in trouble and who's not, what about we take a look back at the regular season as a whole? Because there's at least, I think, three teams that have the argument to be the most surprising teams in the NBA this year. I'll tell you, to me at least, who the most surprising team in all of the NBA is. I think there's three arguments for three teams. To me, one stands out about, uh, above the rest. We'll do that in about 15 minutes at 9.20 uh, Eastern or so, cheating in sports happens again. This time, no, 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 it's not in baseball. No one's taking steroids. It's not in basketball, not in football. Horse racing. Medina Spirit. The Kentucky Derby winner tested positive for PDs. You try to tell the horses don't take performance-sensing drugs. They don't listen anyway. They take them. And now the uh, Medina Spirit horse could end up forfeiting the Kentucky Derby. But I want to kind of talk about it in a larger perspective with how you view cheating in sports what is your, you know, is it a one and done situation where, hey, you cheat one time, you're you're dead to me in your mind, or hey, you know, is it on a case by case basis? We'll, we'll discuss a little bit later on at ten twenty Eastern because there's a lot of cheating going on in sports recently, and I kind of want to get your thoughts because I think mine are, I'll say a little bit different. So we'll do that at ten twenty Eastern teams and players that are down bad. Who's had a down weekend? If you if you know what down bad means, if not, I'll explain it to you at ten forty Eastern. If so. Here's a few teams and a few players this week in sports that are down bad. But I do want to start with the NBA. do want to start with some playoff implications. Because one team that really has been a lightning rod, if you will, a lot of question marks coming about them, are the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, as we know, injuries have really kind of hurt their season. Um, but now as we are just one week away from the playoff starting and from the play-in tournament starting, which right now, if it started today, they would find themselves in. Going from defending champs, a popular repeat pick to be champions this year, 
to now fighting for their playoff lives with the potential to lose two games in a row and not even really make the traditional playoff format. Crazy. But it's interesting because when you look at the Lakers in 2021 and their playoff predicament, it's funny because last year, I can't even say this time last year, obviously it was in August, but 2020, when, when the bubble restarted, the Lakers found themselves basically in the same situation they are now that they were last year. 2020 Lakers, 2021 Lakers, come playoff time, basically the same situations. Because guess what? 2020 in the bubble and those eight regular season seeding games, they're playing some of their worst basketball. Some of their worst basketball. And now you look for 2021, as we were again, just a week away from the playing tournament starting, the Lakers are playing some of their worst basketball. And I had a nice win last night against the Suns, but taking that, you know, or at least looking at the bigger picture, not just looking at one game, they are playing some of their worst basketball of the season right now come playoff time or, or when the playoffs are about to approach. So remember, in the bubble last year, how the format was is you had eight seeding games, if you will, quote unquote, before the playoffs started. Well, in those eight seeding games, the Lakers went three and five. And not only did they just go three and five and were okay in some instances and bad in others, they were flat out terrible, to be completely honest, down there in the bubble when it first started. Again, not only did they have a losing record in those eight games getting ready for the playoffs, they were, out of the entire bubble, the worst three-point shooting team. The worst. There was 22 teams down there in Orlando when the season restarted. They were the worst three-point shooting team in that stretch. Second worst, or, or second lowest, I should say, in terms of points per game in that eight-seeding game stretch. So as the playoffs are approaching, as the season is getting back underway, the Lakers are playing some of their uh, some of their worst basketball. And now fast forward a few months later, here we are yet again. Because now, again, they've lost 8 out of the last 11 games. Currently right now at the standings, they're one game behind the Blazers for 6th, which right now, again, this year, in case you forget, 6th place is clear of the play-in. Six and up, you're, you're good. Seven to ten, you're obviously you're in the playing tournament. So right now, not only are they one game behind the Blazers, which is the few left, the Blazers also have the tiebreaker because they won head-to-head -head, um, on Friday. They won the season series two games to one. So I remember last year, because it's funny, because now I'm looking over this weekend and trying to just, trying to totally get my feelings about how I feel about the Lakers heading into the playoffs. And it's funny because something dawned on me. It's, I feel the same way about the Lakers this year that I did last year. I was a doubter. I'll be completely honest. I totally misread the Lakers, took kind of the, that playing tournament or, or kind of took the seeding games, I should say, forget the playing tournament, took the seeding games too seriously. To where I picked against them, I thought the Rockets with James Harden and Russell Westbrook were going to beat them. I thought the Nuggets with Jamal Murray and Nicole Jokic in the Western Conference Finals were going to beat them. I even picked the Heat to beat the Lakers in the Finals just because what I saw with this team, their bench was so god-awful. They couldn't really have anyone reliable scoring for them. They didn't really have a third scorer outside of LeBron and AD that I thought eventually that would kind of catch up to them to where, hey, I know LeBron and AD are two of the best players on this planet. Can they truly play some of their best basketball night in, night out? Well, they did, and they won the title. But now, kind of looking at this year, a few months later, sort of in the same situation, do you believe in your, in your mind history can repeat itself? Are we going to have a repeat of 2020 where there's doubts about the Lakers, where there's question marks going into the playoffs because they are playing some of their worst basketball of the season. But in the end, they, they find a way to win a title. Or is actually this going to be the year that maybe they don't win the title? That they even fall short of making the finals? 
or even fall short of making the Western Conference Finals. So a question that I don't think is fathomable when the free uh, when the season first started, because you make the argument, and I thought this 100%, they won the title obviously last year, and I thought they got better in the offseason. They upgraded their bench. They brought in Marcus Saul. They brought in Dennis Schroeder. They got rid of some of the dead weight at the end of the roster. I thought they were better. But here we are now entering playoff time. And for me, at least, I don't think history is going to repeat itself. I think this is the year to me where the Lakers, where their injuries, where their lack of continuity, and honestly, the schedule, all three factors come back to bite the Lakers where they won't make the Western Conference Finals. So forget repeating as champs. Forget representing the Western Conference um, as a member or, or being the representative, I should say, in the finals. I don't even think they're going to make the Western Conference Finals. For, again, those three reasons, we'll start with health as number one. So as we know, really, LeBron James, his ankle is going to be a problem the rest of the season. Not just the rest of the regular season with the week left, the rest of the playoffs, through the playoffs, and really, seems like it's not going to be healthy until the season is over, until he actually can get some rest and ha- uh, have that ankle to heal. So he hasn't played in over a week since he returned in the second game since missing six weeks. Missed the final, really the, the final half of the fourth quarter against the Raptors last Sunday. Hasn't played since. So now you have a guy in LeBron James, the best player on the planet, going to the playoffs, not going to be healthy for, again, arguably the first time in his career. And not only is he not going to be healthy with an ankle injury that's really going to be bugging him the entire rest of the year, this is also a guy that thrives, thrives. On routine. He's been in the league. He has now a set routine where the regular season is a buildup for the postseason. Well, here's the issue. He is out of rhythm heading to the postseason. I do have doubts about LeBron James because, again, this is the first time in his career we're going to see him out of the routine, out of the norm for what he's used to feeling heading into playoff time. Because guess what? He has missed 24 out of the last 26 games. He's never had to miss that much time, especially so close to the playoffs, come back and ramp his body up, ramp his play up to where he's playing some of his best basketball at the most meaningful time. So I personally don't think it's going to be a plug-and-play where, hey, he returns to the lineup, let's say Tuesday or Wednesday, plays in two regular season games, and next thing you know, this guy's playing all-world basketball like we're used to seeing LeBron James play in the playoffs. To me, I just don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think we'll see it this year in the playoffs. So you have, obviously, LeBron's health as a major, major question for this Lakers team heading to the playoffs. Anthony Davis, he's, honestly, he's looking pretty damn good. I'll be honest. He played another great game last night, 42 points against the Suns in their win over Phoenix. But this is also a guy that is still trying to work his way back from Achilles tendinosis. He's missed nine weeks going back to February. I just... There's still something about Anthony Davis that always has me holding my breath that he can truly stay healthy for the duration of the playoffs. And now kind of nursing that injury still, coming coming into the playoffs with still that, that thought in the back of your head of an injury, that has me a little concerned as well. And Dennis Schroeder, a guy I think has played really well this year for the Lakers, he's, he's in the health and safety protocols. You've heard Frank Vogel basically say, best case scenario, he comes back with a game or two left in the regular season. But essentially, you know, he's going to come back right at playoff time. So three of the most important players on this Lakers roster are either out right now, have injury concerns, and basically won't be back until the playoffs start. Which brings me to my next point, continuity. I am 100% concerned that this team has barely played together basically since February, 
And now all of a sudden we're supposed to magically believe that come playoff time, come May 18th, if they're in the playing tournament, come May 20th when the playoffs start, that they're just going to get back on the court and it's going to be like that. Like they've never missed any time. I do believe the lack of playing together, the lack of continuity that has happened will come back to bite the Lakers. Because even with a better bench, right? Because again, I made the argument, I think a lot of people did as well. Not just me. This Lakers team got a lot better this year compared to last year, especially with their bench. But now you look, they have trouble kind of figuring out who goes where, what role is going to play. I mean, look at center specifically. You have a glut of centers. You have Andre Drummond, Marcus Gasol, and Montrezl Harrell. Well, Frank Vogel doesn't really know how to play them, when to play who, which guy fits in this role best. It's still a work in progress of how to put the best guys and the best five on the floor. That, to me, is concerning. When we still don't even know what the best, what the, what the best uh, Lakers lineup is, who should play where, how many minutes does this person get, there's still a lot of questions about this roster heading into the postseason. I'm sorry. I understand you have LeBron. I understand you have AD. And most of the time, talent does win out. But I just kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that we can expect a team to make a deep run in the playoffs yet again when their biggest players have injury concerns, when they barely played on the court together. Like, I just don't think it's magic where you wake up, roll out of bed, and all of a sudden you roll the balls out on the court, and these three guys are playing the best basketball they've ever had. Maybe it's a doubter. I got to see, you know, I'll doubt it until I actually see it, then I'll believe it. I just have serious questions that they can actually put it all together in a very short amount of time. And LeBron said it last Sunday uh, in the postgame after the loss of the Raptors. He's not going to be 100%. And he said, if I'm not 100% in the, playoff to- uh, in the playoffs, it doesn't matter what seed we are. And he's right. Because if LeBron is not 100% healthy, to me, the, the Lakers are in big trouble here. Because they are built, and how their team is constructed is extremely top-heavy. LeBron and AD have to carry the, uh, the load most of the nights. Now, again, that's a good problem to have if you're, you know, any of the other 29 teams. You kill for that, to have LeBron and AD be your two main guys night in and night out. The thing, though, is that when you don't have 100% health from AD and LeBron, when you have some injury concerns, they haven't really played together, that top heaviness comes back to bite you because there's really not many other players that could step up in a pinch, step up in a game, and lead you to victory. They played 25 games without LeBron James this year. They're 10 and 15. 10 and 15. Now, again, I understand. He's one of the best players in the world. Any team without their best player is going to struggle. But I think it just highlights how badly this Lakers team needs a fully healthy LeBron to have success. And finally, because I think health is a reason to doubt the Lakers, continuity or lack thereof is a reason to doubt the Lakers, and honestly, how about the playoff schedule? Which is something that I don't think it's getting a lot of attention, and it should. This is going to be the hardest road to the finals LeBron James has ever had to go through. Think about it. So if he's in the play in the plane, right? If the Lakers can't get out of the seventh seed and they're in the playing tournament, let's say they win, right? I, I personally don't think they'll they'll get bounced in the playing tournament. I think they will beat the Warriors. But if they don't, or if they drop down, they're going to have to either in the seven or eight seed. They're going to have to either play the Jazz or the Suns in round one. Then they're going to have to go through the Clippers in round two. Then make it to the Western Conference Finals just just before they make it to the finals. Without having home court in any of these games. I understand fans, it's different. But, you know, we're going to have more fans in arenas. It's going to be more travel. And now for the first time, LeBron won't have home court 
in really any series that he's had. He's never been lower than a four seed in his career. Now he'll be a seven seed, maybe if things go right, a six seed. But I personally, maybe I'm a sucker, maybe I'm an idiot. I am buying into the Clippers, I'll be honest. It's a dangerous game to play. I bought into them last year. I really do think the wake-up call that they received, that embarrassment of blowing the 3-1 lead to the Nuggets, and all the vitriol on social media that came with that blown lead in the bubble, I truly do think that served as a perfect wake-up call to kind of get them motivated, get them fired up to where the Clippers, I think, are going to be a bad matchup for the Lakers in the playoffs, whether it's round one or round two. So you're going to have to have LeBron, AD, and the rest of this team playing their best basketball right away. Because whatever matchup they get in the first round, the Suns, the Jazz, the Clippers, it's going to be a tough series for them. Can't coast your way, can't build your way up like you're playing the Blazers like they did last year. You're you're playing another eight seed like you did in years past. This is playoff basketball. This is a, a tough opponent right from the jump. Something LeBron hasn't had to really deal with before in his career and into the playoffs. So I think all three reasons, health, lack of continuity, and a brutal playoff schedule, all will contribute to the Lakers losing in the second round. Whether it's the Clippers in the first round, Clippers in the second round, I'm kind of calling my shot. I do think the Clippers are going to be the ones to take down the Lakers. So forget the finals, forget the Western Conference finals. I think this is going to be a year for an early exit for the Lakers. I think it all catches up to them in the playoffs. So I'm curious your thoughts. Love to hear them on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey show as well on Twitter. How far do you think the Lakers are going to the playoffs? Are they poised for a big playoff run? Are you buying into Anthony Davis really coming into his own here the last two or three games? Are you buying that LeBron James will be able to basically turn it on at the flip of a switch? Are you seriously and legitimately concerned that this team just, you can't do it. You can't flip a switch that easily come playoff time, and they'll have a, a big-time struggle in the first round and the second round where they won't be making it back to the Western Conference Finals, making it back to the Finals, or winning the title. So I'd love to hear how far do you have the Lakers going in the playoffs. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts. And when we come back, there's been a lot of surprise, right? I think I'm pretty surprised that the Lakers have struggled this year. Again, injuries are a big part of it, but they have struggled this year. But who has been the biggest surprise in a positive way in the NBA? I think there's three teams you may make the argument for. One stands out above the rest. I'll tell you who that team is when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Talking some NBA playoffs. We are just about a week and a day, if you want to get exact, away from the NBA postseason starting the play-in tournament a week from tomorrow. And right now, the season ended today. The Lakers would be in the play-in tournament, taking on most likely the Warriors and for a team that came in with major, major expectations, right? A team that I think was a pretty popular, pretty easy repeat champion pick. They have struggled this year. And again, injuries are a large, large part of it. But now as they're slowly working their way back to finally getting some health. Anthony Davis now is 
seemingly looking like his own, you know, looking like Anthony Davis again, getting back, um, dropping 42 points, having 36 against the, uh, the uh, Trailblazers back on Friday night. He is coming into his own. He is starting to look like pre-injury Anthony Davis, like the guy we saw, honestly, in the bubble for a lot of the time there in the playoffs. He's coming back and sees LeBron James will return either Tuesday or Wednesday, so he'll have two to three games to return to try to kind of knock the rust off, if you will, before the playoffs start. Dennis Schroeder, same thing, could return with a game or two left in the in the post uh, in the in the regular season um, before he gets out of the health and safety protocols. So everything health wise seemingly is starting to come together for the Lakers. Where my doubts come in, I'd love to hear yours again. If you have any any thoughts, if they can go far, if they can go, uh, we'll have an early exit in the postseason. Worldwide Sports Radio on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. You can tweet the show. Right on, on the live stream, both on Facebook and Twitter. Give your thoughts. My concern is threefold here. One, I understand they're getting healthier, but there's still injury questions. There's still injury concern. LeBron James isn't going to be 100% really at any point this postseason. And not only that, we haven't really seen him for the most part miss this amount of time and then kind of ratchet it up in the playoffs in such a, a short span. He's going to have best, absolute best case scenario, what, two or three games to knock off the rust where he's missed 24 of the last 26 games, the longest really injury drought of his career where he's missed time, having to then ramp up for the playoffs. Remember, two years ago when he hurt his groin, the Lakers missed the playoffs. So even though he missed a good amount of time and did come back for a little bit, they shut him down because they were out of the playoffs. So we've never had LeBron kind of have to have such a quick turnaround from injury to trying to play your best basketball in the postseason to that that's a maybe you know I'm not being smart here doubting the best player that I, I've ever seen personally in LeBron but it's a tough ask for me for anyone to be able to make such a quick turnaround um that the lack of continuity I mean they barely played together really since February always there's really been someone out here um and to me again I just don't think it's it's magic where Everyone's back on the court. All of a sudden, boom, like everyone is, is back playing together. Everyone's on the same page. I just don't personally see that happening. Same reason why I have serious doubts about the Nets. I just don't think that you can wake up after missing months and months of time, not being used to each other on the court, and all of a sudden, come playoff time, expect that everything's going to be smooth. And not to mention the schedule. This is the lowest seed LeBron James will ever be in the postseason. Either at a, an 8, potentially if they lose the first game in the play-in, a 7, or if they get out of the play-in tournament, a 6. That's a tough road to not have any home court at all throughout the playoffs. To play a tough opponent right out of the gate, there's not going to be a 1 seed, not going to be a 2 seed. Even when the Cavaliers in some years were a 4 seed, you know that 5th seed they're playing the first round. Sure, it's supposed to be tight in the standings. It's LeBron. You know they'll cruise through it. This is different. This is different. So for those three reasons, for health, lack of continuity, schedule, I think this is going to all add up to an early postseason exit for the Lakers. I'm calling second round. Don't even think they get back to the Western Conference Finals. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well as where you can chime in. We'll get your thoughts before we get out of here at 11 a.m. Eastern. But I do though want to talk about some positives, at least in the NBA. Because with the week left in the season, I think it's fair to kind of look back now on the season, and we have all the information we're basically going to get heading to the postseason. But before we start getting ready for playoff basketball, 
How about we look at look back at the regular season and talk about surprises? Do you think to me there are three teams in the NBA that really deserve the honor of being called the biggest surprise in the NBA in a positive? Right? I think it's the Knicks, the Jazz, and the Suns. Knicks right now, you look 30 and 34th in the Eastern Conference. Jazz 50 and 18, the best record in the NBA, just like we all predicted when the season started. The Jazz had the best record in the NBA. Second best record in the NBA, just like we all predicted again. The Phoenix Suns, 48 and 20. So I think three teams right now with the Knicks, Jazz, and Suns, no one saw the success they've had this year coming. So who's been the most surprised? Which team in your mind deserves to be called the biggest surprise in the NBA this year? For me, this is not being a homer, I promise. I feel like I'm looking at this objectively. But for me, the answer is the Knicks. It has to be the New York Knicks. Because honestly, what they're doing, the success they've had this season, the 38-30 and record, currently right now being fourth in the Eastern Conference, having home court advantage in the first round of the postseason, is honestly incomprehensible, inconceivable. Because I never could have imagined, could have expected, could have thought that from where the Knicks were this time last year to where they are now, there was no shot in my mind that a turnaround could happen so quickly. Because guess what? This team had issues. And they had a ton of issues. This wasn't one thing where, hey, you bring one player and all of a sudden kind of things turn around. Or, hey, you make a coaching change. All of a sudden this team with talent gets a boost, gets a spark, and they just kind of take off. There was so much that needed to happen, so much that needed to get fixed to be right first before they could even think about winning basketball games. Think about it. This time last year, when the season ended, the Knicks were 21-45. and 45. An awful record. But not only that, Julius Randle was just okay last year. He was eh. He was the big free agent signing. A lot of mocking came with that where they tried for Kevin Durant, they shot for Kyrie Irving, and settled with Julius Randle. He was just okay last year. R.J. Barrett really struggled shooting the ball with consistency, and they were just an awful defensive team. The Knicks really didn't do many things right last year. And honestly, when they hired Tom Thibodeau in the offseason, personally, I thought it was a mistake. With the youth that the Knicks had on this team, with the amount of lottery picks that I, wanna, I don't want to say missed on, because for me, it's lack of development, I thought Kenny Atkinson from the Nets was the perfect guy because you have so many young players. They need to be developed. And my fear was that Tom Thibodeau was a guy that didn't have the patience to develop the young players. Instead, he was going to come here with the same goal the Knicks have had for the last two decades. Bring a coach in here that can attract a big-time star. Where that hasn't worked, and I didn't think it was going to work because you look at what the Nets built, what the Clippers built. They built a core group of young players that were one or two stars away from competing for an NBA title. They attracted stars because, again, the Clippers aren't a destination. The Nets aren't a destination for stars to go to. But they were in 2019 because they had a young core in place that had everything set for where a star could come in and take them over the top. Whereas the Knicks kind of want to jump the line. Forget, you know, we have all this dysfunction in the front office. James Donor is the worst owner in sports. The head coach doesn't know what he's talking about. The GM is constant infighting, constant backstabbing the front organiz- uh, in the front office. The draft picks stink. There's zero development. You have no talent on the roster. But here, come to New York. Come play in the Mecca. Come be our savior. Despite the fact you have to do it all on your own. So that was my, th- that was my fear that Thibodeau would 
adopt or we're coming here with the mindset of we're going to bring a star in here. We're going to turn this around quickly. And unfortunately, we've seen for the Knicks that has now worked. But his development of the young players has been incredible. Think about it. Julius Randle, we just said, was, yeah, okay last year. Inconsistent. He's, you know, he's been turned into an all-star. Averaging 24 points per game, which is five higher than last year. Even more impressively, he went from shooting last year. The three balls have been a huge addition to Randall's game. Last year, he was shooting just 27.7% from three. I mean, at that percentage, you don't even guard a guy when he's out there. You tell Juice Randall, you shoot the ball. You keep shooting from three. This year, he's up to 41.7. He's in a legitimate problem now for defenses shooting the ball from deep. R.J. Barrett, another guy who has taken it in year number two now, a major leap in large part thanks to Tom Thibodeau. His field goal percentage, three-point field goal percentage, free throw percentage, his rebounds per game, assists per game, all up this year compared to last year. The consistency is there. It's been a huge leap from year one to year two with R.J. Barrett. Same thing with Julius Randle. And you look at the defense. I mean, you talk about a quantum leap. Last year... The Knicks were god-awful in defense. 23rd in defensive rating, if you want to be exact. Well, you look this year. Fourth in all the NBA defensive rating. They are first in the NBA in terms of opponent field goal percentage, opponent three-point field goal percentage. They have been locked down. They've been playing incredible defense. That has been the catalyst so far this year for their success. And they did it yet again yesterday against the Clippers. Hold them to 100 points. This team, to me, is easily the biggest surprise in the NBA because not only did they fix so many different assets or aspects of the game in such a short time, they're doing it at a consistent pace against some of the best teams in the NBA NBA. because at this point, it's not a fluke. Like early on, maybe in January and February, hey, the Knicks are celebrating because they're over 500. Remember those viral videos when they beat the Pacers and they're over 500 for the latest point in the season in almost a decade and people are making fun of the Knicks fans because they're going crazy because, again, they, they won a game in January, and here they are you know, in a playoff spot in like eighth place. But now here we are sitting here on May 10th. Knicks are in fourth place. This is legit. They are consistently doing this. They have won 13 out of the last 16 games. This is not a little hot streak. This is who they become. So for me, that's part of the reason why they're so successful. No, I mean, they're the biggest surprise no one could see this amount of success and sustainable success coming in, sh- in such a short turnaround. Whereas look at the Jazz. Not taking anything away from what they've done this season, but they at least had the players in place to be able to make a run like this where they're the best team in the NBA. Right? Donovan Mitchell, fair to say, is easily right now elevating his, himself, so he is slowly making the climb to stardom. He's been an incredible player yet again at continuing to get better year in and year out. Rudy Gobert, best defensive player in all the game right now. You have a tremendous bench with Jordan Clarkson and Joe Ingles. Quinn Snyder is a great coach, right? A very solid coach. So sure, I'm not going to sit here and told you I predicted the, the Jazz to be the best team in the NBA this year, record-wise. But they had the talent to be, I think, heading into the year, a top four, top five seed. And they have maximized that talent this year. Push all the right buttons. Great team from three. And that has elevated them to the best record in the NBA. So at least they had the talent that they had. They had the pieces in place to make a run like this. And for me, the same thing with the Suns. Now, it's weird to say because similar to the Knicks, the Suns missed out on the playoffs last year. They were invited to the bubble, at least. So they made the top 22, unlike the Knicks. 
but also similar to the uh, the Jazz. The Suns had the players in place. I love Devin Booker. He might be my favorite non-Knicks player in the NBA. Love watching him play. This guy's a walking bucket everywhere he goes. He is just a baller. You have DeAndre developing, becoming along now. Former number one overall pick. He's really kind of settling into his own now and starting to get comfortable within the NBA game. You had Mikhail Bridges. You had, you had at least last year Kelly Oubre. This was a team with talent. They went 8-0 in the bubble last year. They were able to take that momentum towards the end of the season, put it all together. You add Chris Paul, you add Jay Crowder and Torrey Craig to the team this year, and they have taken off. So sure, I understand that you know they, have, they went from a team that missed the playoffs last year to now the second best record in the NBA. Massive, massive, massive jump. And honestly, most years, they are the most surprising team. But again, to me, at least coming into the year, you had the expectation that they were a playoff team. You knew there was some legitimate talent on this team. The collection was there. Can they put it all together to get what they've had so far this year? The answer is yes. But I think we at least had an inkling that, hey, this is a playoff team. They're trending in the right direction. Same thing with the Jazz, despite a heartbreaking end to the season last year. So at least for me, because the Jazz already had pieces in place, because the Suns were building something in the right direction, surprising that they've been as good as they were? Absolutely. But for me, when you look at the Knicks, this team was hopeless. There was no reason to believe Tom Thibodeau was going to be the answer. There was no reason to believe Julius Randle could transform his game into an all-star level, all-star caliber, number one option on a playoff team sort of level. There's no way to think R.J. Barrett is going to take the elite that he did in year two. Emmanuel quickly has been a, a, a great hit for them in the draft. They've made it work with Taj Gibson and Mitchell Robinson kind of rotating in the center position. They have made a lot of you know chicken salad out of chicken you-know-what this year. For me, at least, that's why the Knicks have been the most surprising team in the NBA. Tom Thibodeau, for me, coach of the year. Because the amount of hoops he's had to come through, or jump through, all the adversity he's had overcome throughout the entire organization. To me, that, that's, that's why, the, to me, the Knicks are the biggest surprises here. They've had so much treading in the wrong direction that no one even thought they were going to be a playoff team. Just be competitive. That was the only hope. That was the only goal for me this year. Just be competitive. Forget playoffs. Forget even play-in. I wasn't even expecting the play-in tournament to be a possibility. I kind of figured they had the same record as they did last year. The only hope was, hey, just be more competitive in these games. Give me a reason to watch in the fourth quarter. Not kind of roll over as we're going to the fourth down by 30. And they have obviously done way, way better than just giving Knicks fans competitive games. So for me, the answer is the Knicks. Most surprising in the NBA. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Who has been the most surprising team in the NBA? For me, it's down to three candidates. The Jazz, the Suns, the Knicks. Is there a team I'm leaving out? Am I overlooking a team that should be in the conversation that you think has been the biggest surprise so far this year? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Again, Facebook and Twitter. Comment on the live stream. You can tweet us directly. We'll read your thoughts. And when we come back, We'll do a little NFL. We'll sprinkle in a little NFL action here. Because there is something that rarely happens in the draft that went down this year. You had quarterbacks reuniting with some of their college skill players. It happened four times, actually, in the first round. I'll tell you who it is and who will be the most successful. 
which would be the most dynamic rookie quarterback wide receiver slash running back dynamic or, or duo that we will see next year? I'll tell you the answer in, let's say, three minutes when the Ryan Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, going till 11 a.m. Eastern, with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I just want to say this before we get into uh, quarterback and uh, wide receiver rookie tandems that will have the most success. We gotta make the Macarena like a, a more mainstream song. This is a total banger. I'll be honest, the last week I've listened to whether it's on runs, whether it's just walking around, whether it's on the train going to work. I have had this song on repeat for a ton this week. It's just it's such a song to me that, that gets you upbeat, that is just such an easy one to groove to, that gets you in a good mood. We gotta be playing this song more often. Put it on the radio. Let's get the, the Macarena more normalized here, where it's not just reserved for weddings and sweet 16s and bar mitzvahs. We got to be getting this song out more often. It is a total, total banger. But also the, the remix version, to be fair. The, I think it's what? The Bayside Boys remix here is, is the one that it says. Because that's, that's the one that's a little more upbeat that kind of gets, you know, gets the beat going here. So at least that was something that's on my mind really the last week. What a song. Been on repeat a ton. So I figured, you know what? Let's bring it to the show. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm the only one who kind of still likes that song. That's kind of feel like my kind of genre, the music that gets you going, that gives you know gives you a little pep in your step. But that's one that has put me in, in a good mood this last week. Let's get the Macarena out here more often. But I know you didn't tune in to listen to my thoughts on music because man, they are brutal. I will be honest here. I am. I guess people, if you're a music enthusiast, you probably hate my style or hate my taste in music because I'm a big radio guy. So, you know, all the top 40 hits that are replayed five times an hour, every hour, those are my songs. I will listen the hell out of songs for two or three weeks at a time, just basically kill them, and then move on to the next one. Just kind of what the radio does now, but that's, that's kind of my genre. So I know a lot of music enthusiasts, purists, will hate kind of my style and how um, I have my taste in music, but I know that's why I don't host a music show. I try to host a sports show, so I'll stick to what I know here and move on. So like I said, there was something kind of cool and rare that happened in the NFL draft, I guess a week and a half ago. And you saw a few quarterbacks reuniting with their college teammates in the first round. It doesn't happen too often. But you had Trevor Lawrence, right, obviously going number one to the Jaguars. He reunited with his college teammate in Travis Etienne as the Jaguars later on in the first round took the Clemson running back. So you had the Clemson quarterback, Clemson running back, Travis Etienne, Trevor Lawrence, boom, reunited down there in Jacksonville. To a tongue of Iloa. Obviously, as we know, the former Alabama quarterback reunited with Jalen Waddle, his former Crimson Tide receiver, as the, the Dolphins took Waddle at number six. You had Jalen Hurts, before he went to Oklahoma at uh, Alabama for three years, he is now reunited with Devontae Smith. And obviously, as we know, very dynamic and productive Crimson Tide receiver. And finally, you had the deadly connection back in 2019. Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase of the Bengals say, forget the offensive line. Forget Joe Burrow's health. We are going to get him a pass catcher in Jamar Chase. They reunite the former LSU Tiger teammates that teamed up to win a national title in 2019. So there's a lot there, you know, a lot of good college production now reunited 
on the NFL level. So I'm curious your thoughts. I'd love to hear about Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Which duo you think will have the most success? Who will be the most productive in 2021? So we're not saying long-term. We'll just go rookie years. Right? These rookie receivers, rookie running back, and Trevor Lawrence's case, rookie quarterback. Which of these duos? Lawrence Etienne, Tungavailoa, Jalen Waddle, Jalen Hurts, Devontae Smith, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase. In your mind, which will have the most success in 2021? For me, the answer is going to be Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. Obviously, as we know, their connection in college was tremendous. In case you missed it, or in case you forget, we'll just go 2019 alone, because that was obviously the, the career year Joe Burrow had. That was the incredible year Jamar Chase had. So in 14 games, just 14 games, Jamar Chase caught 84 passes for 1,780 yards and 20, 20 touchdowns. Insane. I know it's college, so I know the stats are a little inflated. That is still, I mean, 1,780 yards, 20 touchdowns in just 14 games. And oh, yeah. It wasn't like it was just Jamar Chase and no one else. You had Terrence Marshall, and you had also Justin Jefferson, arguably rookie of the year status right there with Justin Herbert. So a tremendously talented wide receiver core, and Jamar Chase still balled out. So that's number one. Now, I mean, maybe not the best reason, but I think it adds to the argument. Tremendous college success. Not to mention, the Bengals are going to be throwing the ball a ton this year. A ton. Let's look back, because obviously Joe Burrow had his season cut short because of 20 ACL, so he's not going to lead the league in pass attempts. He's not even going to come close, because he obviously you know missed five, six games that everyone else has an advantage of. That's a ton of throws he won't have. But when you break it down for passing attempts per game, per game, Joe Burrow averaged 40.4 passing attempts per game. Guess what that did? That led the NFL last year. So, yeah, I don't see that changing too much. When Joe Burrow was in there, when he was healthy, guess what? The Bengals were throwing the ball, and they were throwing the ball a ton. Now, here's why I don't see that changing. Despite the fact that, yes, he tore his ACL, despite the fact that they made marginal, at best, upgrades to the offensive line, there's still a lot of questions. They decided that it was at least good enough to go get a pass catcher instead of getting Pene Sewell to shore up the offensive line. But here's why, at least, I think, despite the fact that, you know, you saw the worst-case scenario happen when you throw the ball 40 times behind a crappy offensive line. Zach Taylor won't be able to scale down the number of pass attempts because guess what? Zach Taylor, his best job security right now is Joe Burrow. He's got to save his job. For me, at least, I think he's in the hot seat to where if they have any similar um, kind of success like they did last year, or really lack thereof, I think Zach Taylor is going to get fired. Personally, I don't think he's a really good head coach. I think the Bengals would be a lot better off going in another direction. Right now, if you're Zach Taylor, you are in preservation mode. You are, I got to do whatever it takes to save my job. And guess what right now? We're not going to be a very good running team. We only have the offensive line to run the ball. So we are going to, basically, I'm going to risk my career in Joe Burrow's right arm. So sure, despite the fact that maybe most coaches with common sense would get scared off after realizing, hey, we threw the ball 40 times a game with Joe Burrow. He couldn't even make it a full season. He was just getting killed. And the hits that didn't tear his ACL were still pretty big, and he was taking some you know, big wallops. He doesn't have the luxury 
of kind of trying to almost preserve his rookie quarterback because right now he's got to worry about saving his own job. Whatever it takes to make sure you're still employed in 2022, in 2023, to me is what Zach Taylor is going to do, which is why I think that they went Jamar Chase at number five, which is why I don't think they're going to be scaling down their pass attempts at all in 2021. So you're going to to have Joe Burrow throwing the ball and throwing the ball a ton. So there are going to be a lot of you know, opportunities for Jamar Chase. Obviously, they have that tremendous college connection. I think it's, to me, it's why it's going to transit to the NFL, why they'll be the most productive duo. For Travis uh, Etienne and Trevor Lawrence, a few things have me concerned. Really, primarily, it's going to be a crowded backfield in Jacksonville. Like Part of the success is, honestly, just getting enough reps, is just getting enough targets or enough handoffs. Well, When you look at right now what Jacksonville has running back-wise, you have James Robinson, the undrafted running back that Jacksonville got last year, he ran for 1,000 yards. Now, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I'm being crazy here. I don't think all of a sudden they're going to start phasing out James Robinson from the offense. Maybe Urban is crazier than we thought. Maybe he values maybe the running back position even more than we think. But I don't see James Robinson all of a sudden kind of getting dropped like a bad habit here, despite the fact that he ran for 1,000 yards last year. So I think he'll still get a lot of burn. He'll still get a ton of carries. They signed Carlos Hyde in free agency. Huh. Wonder, wonder why. Former Ohio State running back that played under Urban Meyer. And now you bring in Travis Etienne, at least in his rookie year. I mean, you had Urban Meyer after round one in his press conference basically say that, hey, the goal is going to be James Robinson and Carlos Hyde. They're going to be our workhorses. They're going to be the guys on first and second out. We're going to be getting the ball to and hand it off to a ton. Travis Etienne, maybe be the second running back if we do two running back sets. Mostly be a guy that seems like it will be, you know, in the slot. Spread out wide, give him swing passes, give him screen passes here, and kind of be a pass-catching running back. He basically said he's going to be a third-down kind of guy. So the reason why I don't think that the ETN and Lawrence tandem will have a lot of success is I just don't think there's enough reps to go around. you got a crowded running back room, and if you're going to kind of limit, at least in his rookie year, Travis ETN to being a third-down back or primarily a pass-catching running back, doesn't really bode well in terms of fantasy success, in terms of just pure number success in 2021 at least. So for me personally, that's you know kind of the crowded backfield, lack of carries, lack of opportunity for Travis Etienne is why I don't think that this kind of duo, this rookie duo coming at Clemson will be the most successful teammates that have been reunited in the NFL in 2021. Go to the Eagles. You have Devontae Smith teaming up with Jalen Hurts. Boy, I, ha- I don't know about you. I have a ton of questions about this Philadelphia offense. I mean, do we even know, is Jalen Hurts even any good? He played, to be nice, three and a half games this year. That was enough for the Eagles to kind of ship out Carson Wentz to the Colts and hitch their wagons, at least for 2021, to Jalen Hurts. But I don't know what he's going to be as a quarterback. I don't know if he's good at reading defenses. I don't know if he's a good passer. I don't know if he's a consistent passer. Not to mention, new head coach Nick Sirianni coming over from the Colts. I don't really know what his offense is going to look like. In part two, there's not many pieces on this Philadelphia offense that can allow for success. I mean, think about it. The offense kind of stinks, to be fair. The offense line is beat up. It is aging. It is older. The wide receivers don't really scare me. I like Devontae Smith. But now, there's no Jalen Waddell. There's no Henry Ruggs. There's no Jerry Judy. Take some pressure off you. Jalen Rager? 
Didn't really have a great year one. I'm still not sure. I'm still not sold that the Eagles don't even know how to, that the Eagles know, excuse me, how to use him. But that's the thing. I'm not even sure they know the right way to use Jalen Rager, who's a more of a speedster. I don't want to say gadget kind of receiver, but he's a smaller speed option. You lose using the slot to kind of get mismatches and do that. The Eagles didn't really know how to use him last year. Injuries also prevented that, but he was a fail, at least in year one. Greg Ward has made himself a career, you know, going from a college quarterback to an NFL wide receiver. Not an easy transition. He's made himself at least into a dependable wide receiver. Now, if I'm defenses, am I worried about Greg Ward? Honestly, no. So it might be Devontae Smith carrying the load for himself with a questionable offensive line, with a questionable quarterback, with an offense that we're not even sure can have success. So if honestly, there's too many questions for me to feel confident that the Jalen Hurts-Devontae Smith duo will have a ton of success in 2021. When you look at the other Alabama wide receiver um, quarterback connection down there in Miami, Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Waddle, to me, I think it has the opportunity and the possibility to be the second most productive duo. I just think I, I can really feel confident saying number one. Because as we know, the Dolphins, boy, are they desperate for a playmaker. They needed some sort of explosive threat on offense in the worst way. Because in 2020, they didn't have that. They did not have that because of injuries. Also, just lack of speed, lack of production. There's no big-time threats in this Miami offense. Now, to their credit, they've gone out to fix that. They, they signed Will Fuller where if he gets a healthy, he's a great deep threat. Now you sign Jalen Waddle, another speedy receiver that, hey, if you have Will Fuller going deep, opens up the middle for Jalen Waddle, opens up the underneath for Jalen Waddle, have him run some short routes, get the ball in his hands, and just let him run. Let him go with it. But here's my question. Here's why I don't feel confident in saying that the Jalen Waddle to a Tungvaloa um, combo could be number one in terms of rookie quarterback, receiver success that teamed up in college, and now they're teamed up again in the NFL. I don't know, and I don't trust that the Dolphins will open up to a Tungvaloa, let him rip it up, let him cut loose in this offense. Now, I like to, I'm a believer in two. I think the Dolphins made the right call in not drafting a quarterback, not going for Justin Fields, not trading up to make a move for Trey Lance. I think they made the right call in sticking by Tua, giving him a shot here to really win the job in year number two and take over this offense. But as we know, kind of in 2020, whether it was just Brian Flores' identity, whether it was Chan Gailey's conservativeness, whether it was just kind of having the handcuffs and Tua maybe wasn't 100% ready to go, this offense had training wheels on in 2020. A lot of safe passes, a lot of play action underneath, not a lot of, you know, big reads for Tua. It wasn't really an offense that pushed the ball down the field. In part, maybe because they didn't have the playmakers to do so, in part because the offense was very conservative. In year number two, are they going to open it up? I'm not really sure, to be honest. They brought in co-offensive coordinators, so the offense is going to be a little bit different. But I'm not sure how much they're going to let Tua rip it. So for that uncertainty, I can't really feel confident in proclaiming the Tungavailoa Waddle duo will have the most success. So for me, the answer is going to be Joe Burrow. In part, just flat out, to be honest. Obviously, the talent is there, but also just the opportunity, the reps. Again, 40 pass attempts per game for Joe Burrow when he was healthy led the NFL. I don't think that's going to change. So that's going to mean a lot of balls going Jamar Chase's way. They can catch him and have success. So for me, out of the four duos that were reunited right in college that were teammates and now back teammates in the NFL, Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, Tua Tungavaloa, Jalen Waddell, Jalen Hurts, Devontae Smith, and Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase. I think the final one, Chase and Burrow will have the most success 
for 2021. So I'm curious your thoughts. You agree, disagree, love to hear them why. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Which quarterback, receiver, slash running back, rookie tandem, in your mind, will be the most successful in 2021? We'll get your thoughts on Facebook, on Twitter. We'll read them out loud when we come back for hour number two. The Green Bay Packers, to me, made a big mistake. Now, there's no new information about Aaron Rodgers and the Packers coming out this weekend, but I wanted to kind of get this in last week, didn't have time. Should they have traded Aaron Rodgers at the draft? Did they make a massive mistake in holding on to Rodgers and not trading him to the 49ers or to the Broncos or to the Panthers or whoever else was interested? Basically, as soon as this story of him wanting out of Green Bay came to late on draft day, should they, did they miss a major opportunity to get the most back for Aaron Rodgers? We will discuss when the Ryan Hickey Show does return here, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Number two, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You are listening to the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here until 11 a.m. Eastern. Touch on the Lakers and their um, their situation, we'll say. They're standing heading to the playoffs. Can they repeat what they did last year? Kind of struggling heading to the playoffs. And obviously, as we know, won the title. So we'll circle back to that here in a little bit. I do want to kind of circle back to and at least touch on one last thing, I feel like, with Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Hackers in the situation. Now, as you know, really week and a half for the most part, almost going on two weeks now since Adam Schefter dropped the big bomb, the Shefty bomb, that Aaron Rodgers wanted out of Green Bay. He's been disgruntled. He doesn't want to play for the Packers in 2021. You've had subsequent reports since that basically saying, hey, he's not totally against returning to the Packers. It would just have to be basically that the GM, Brian Gutekunst, out. Out. So as we know, it's interesting because when you look at the Packers organization as a whole, they have been, right, for the most part, I think it's fair to say, a model organization. You look at their history, over 100 years in the NFL. They're almost 200 games above 500 for their franchise history. They have four Super Bowl victories. And really, this is crazy. Since 1992, just four Losing seasons. They've been a model of or, uh, model organization. They've been a model of consistency. They have been consistently good for a very long time. Again, since 1992, almost 30 years, just four losing seasons. Almost every other franchise would kill for that sustainability, would kill for that consistent success. But that doesn't mean that they are free of fault doesn't mean that they haven't made their own share mistakes. Because just this past year, this calendar year, they have made plenty, plenty, plenty of mistakes. You're making the argument that trading up the draft Jordan Love was a big-time mistake. Definitely not telling Aaron Rodgers that they were trading up for a quarterback in the first round was a massive mistake. Seemingly, right now, they had a plan in place trying to replace or get rid of Aaron Rodgers and kind of paved the way for the next guy that they hope is there for the next 15 years. But now when you see kind of the Packers going back, trying to make Aaron Rodgers a big-time deal, trying to work things over and smooth things out, well, it makes you kind of think, 
do they really have a plan after all? That's a mistake where they seemingly had a plan and now it seems like they don't have a plan. They're, maybe their plan was to go year by year with Aaron Rodgers. If that's the case, well, it's a big mistake because they thought that he'd be okay with it. I'm not sh- really sure why that they thought a Hall of Fame all-time great quarterback would be okay with getting strung along by an organization that refuses to go all in to win a Super Bowl despite being on the cusp and has his replacement in the wings where it's almost an embarrassment that they're just kind of keeping you long-term or anytime they talk about Aaron Rodgers in the media, it's all non-committal. So thinking that your quarterback, your star quarterback will play along with your plan to me is a mistake. And finally, the, the final area you can look at the Packers and how they've operated the past year and called a mistake was not trading Aaron Rodgers at the draft. So we just kind of highlighted there, what, one, two, three, four, five, five or six big-time mistakes the Packers have made, a model organization. Five or six mistakes they've made just in the calendar year alone that make you scratch your head. So I'm curious. And you know, what has been their biggest mistake so far through this entire process? Because for me, honestly, looking back at all of this, going from the night they trade up the draft Jordan Love in, the ra- in round one of the 2020 NFL draft to where we are right now on May 10th, the biggest mistake in my mind, honestly, is not trading Aaron Rodgers at draft night. That is the biggest mistake so far the Packers have made because that move has now created extra drama within the organization. And to me, it also hurts the development of a guy that you want to be the next guy for the next 15 years in Jordan Love. So here's, here's why, at least to me in my mind, now, this is me on the record, by the way, saying I think they should keep Aaron Rodgers over Brian Gutekunst. Obviously, realistically, that's not going to happen. But here's why, at least in my mind, it, the biggest mistake so far is not trading Aaron Rodgers at the draft. On draft night, when Adam Schefter breaks news, boom, Aaron Rodgers is disgruntled. You had teams making calls. To me, it's a big mistake that they didn't take those calls and broker a deal before the draft started a few hours later. Because here's what doesn't make sense in my mind. I've tried to rationalize it. I've tried to wrap my brain around it. I've tried to put myself, dangerous, I've tried to put myself in the position of Brian Gutekunst. What was he thinking when he made the pick for Jordan Love? What was he thinking now kind of making all the subsequent moves since that? To me, it's counterintuitive for the Packers not to have traded Aaron Rodgers at the, at the draft. And it's really counterintuitive for them to keep Aaron Rodgers. So let's just quickly, quickly rehash what has gone on so far, right? As we know, the Packers went 13-3 and in 2019. They go in Matt LaFleur's first year there. They go to the NFC title game, get their doors blown off by the, by the 49ers in the NFC title game in San Francisco. But as we know, kind of right, heading into the offseason, the two, I think, obvious weak points were really the need for a second receiver to pair with Devontae Adams and also to shore up the run defense. They were kind of gashed all year long, and as we know, it really came to a head. <laughs> Again, San Francisco, where he most started, I think is still running in that game. So they did not address that. They, they, their two weaknesses glaring for a team that was trying to go to the Super Bowl were not addressed. Then you trade up to draft Jordan Love. So, okay, that signals, in my mind, to me, the future is now. Sure, 13-3 and three was nice, but this new regime... This new head coach, this new, well, not new, but Guduka has been there just relatively new. They are ready to kind of make their mark and kind of start already focusing on the future. They are thinking in this draft, what's going to be the Packer or what are the Packers going to be in 10 years from now? Forget just 10 months from now. So as you know, they trade up the draft. Jordan Love, don't tell on Rodgers. A lot of drama there. A lot of questions circulating. What's the future like of Aaron Rodgers? 
All of that leads to them going 13-3 and three again this year. As we know, Aaron Rodgers wins the MVP. 48 touchdown passes, five interceptions, plays some of the best football we've ever seen him play. And again, you would think, all right, what is the plan here? Are we still going for the future? And that's why, to me, I remember on draft night, kind of circling the Packers as the team I'm most interested in, in, in seeing how they draft. Because we saw it last year in 2020, they drafted for the future. They said, forget the fact that we are, you know, a game away from the Super Bowl. We are already worried about what we're going to be like in five years from now. So why I was so excited to kind of see what they did was, again, another 13-3 year, another offseason where they don't kind of cash in on free agency. They don't make a big trade to kind of put them over the edge to compete with the Buccaneers, to compete with the Rams, who both have made moves to get even better in the NFC. I was interested in seeing how they're going to attack this draft because, again, you did it already focusing on the future once. Are you going to do it again now in the second draft in a row and give Jordan Love the best team possible when he is ready to start, whether it's 2021, which is doubtful, 2022 most likely? How are you going to surround Jordan Love with the best team possible? And in that time, as we know, every single press conference that was asked about the future of Aaron Rodgers, the Packers were non-committal. So to me, at least, it seemed very clear that 2021 was going to be the last year for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. It made sense for Rodgers. It made sense for the Packers. Think about it. Again, we just talked about this. It was disrespectful for the Packers to me how they treated Aaron Rodgers. Taking a franchise quarterback and basically stringing him along publicly, saying, yeah, he's our guy for the foreseeable future. Yeah, he's, you know, we're not going to kind of restructure his contract because the last thing we want is to have more dead money in the future years to where that's a bigger hit on the cap when we are trying to get rid of him and we are trying to move on and usher in the Jordan Love era. We don't want dead money on our cap, wasting space because we restructured a deal for Aaron Rodgers that now is costing us. So for me, it made sense for the Packers or it made sense for Aaron Rodgers to leave because this is a, this is a team that obviously can't commit to you. You're so close to the Super Bowl, doesn't want to go all in to try to get a second ring. They are already focused on the future. So for you, it makes sense to do what Tom Brady did. Go to a team that will respect you, that will want to win a Super Bowl with you, and do whatever it takes to do so. The Buccaneers did it with Tom Brady. It worked out. I think another team will absolutely do that for Aaron Rodgers. And I think they could have similar success because that's how good Rodgers is playing right now. And for the Packers, as soon as you make the move for Jordan Love, as soon as you call Jordan Love's name in the draft in 2020, the clock is ticking on Aaron Rodgers. That's it. I'm sorry, there's no justification. The clock is ticking. You've sent a message to your quarterback, to the rest of the team, to the rest of the league. We are done with the Aaron Rodgers era in Green Bay. We are already focused on the future. We are petrified. We are more scared. Forget not winning a second Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. We are petrified that even if we do have short-term success with Rodgers, even if we do make a Super Bowl, maybe even win a Super Bowl, if we aren't competitive when he retires, if we stink, or we have two or three losing seasons in a row because we went all in to get a second ring, that is the biggest fear for this Packers organization. They want sustained competitiveness, we'll say. Again, I just hit on it. Four losing seasons since 1992. Their biggest goal as an organization isn't to win the Super Bowl. It's to be competitive. It's to be in the mix, which is the reason why they've never kind of gone all in on a free agent. They've never made a big-time trade because they want flexibility. They want to at least have the ability to be consistently good. So if you're the Packers, it makes no sense for you then to go all in on Aaron Rodgers for a year or two 
if that has never been your MO, or if your motivation, I should say, isn't winning the Super Bowl, but it should just be, hey, 10 and 6, make the playoffs. 11 and 5, make the playoffs. That's it. If we, if we win the Super Bowl, great. But we're going to do so almost, I don't want to say get lucky. Yeah, that's not fair to the team. But we're going to win the Super Bowl basically doing it our way. And if it ends in a Super Bowl, great. If not, okay, at least we had a winning record. At least the fans could come back for 2022. At least we will be competitive. So it made sense for me, at least for the, for the Packers, to move on from Rodgers in 2021. They weren't going to commit to him long-term. They got to get Jordan Love on the field. Because as we know, with quarterback contracts, they get expensive quick. So you draft Jordan Love. He sits in 2020. He's a third string. Doesn't even get on the field in 2020. Not ready for 2021 by all accounts. So he's going to sit again this season. Well, 2022, you got to get this guy on the field. You got to see what you got. Because after the 2022 season, because he's a first-round pick, you have that fifth-year option you exercise. Basically keeps him on the team for three, you know, for an extra year, if you will, where every other contract is four years for a player you draft um, or you get in the draft. For the first round, you have that fifth-year option. You know, it's more expensive, so you got to figure out right away, hey, we're going to play Jordan Love in 2022. One season, we're going to have to determine, well, is he a fit for us? Or, you know, do we have to go somewhere else? So all of a sudden, right away, next year, you got to make a move quick. So wouldn't you at least think it makes the most sense if you're Brian Gutekunst, the general manager, if you're Mark Murphy, the Packers president, if you're Matt LaFleur, obviously the head coach, wouldn't it make the most sense to give Jordan Love then the best chance to succeed? Where if you have such a small window to decide Two or three years, is this guy good enough to where we can give him a long-term contract to keep him in Green Bay, or do we have to hit the eject button? Do we have to do what the Bears did with Mitchell Trubisky, move on quickly, realize the mistake, and try to get someone else? Or can Jordan Love be our guy? Well, the way the Packers set themselves up, they had at most, at absolute most, three years to make that decision. 2022, 2023, 2024. See how Jordan Love plays at the end of 2024, either give him a big-time deal, sign him long-term, or cut bait and move on. So you would think, because you only have such a short runway now with how expensive quarterback contracts are, you got to give Jordan Love the most weapons possible. Now, they already have a very talented team. Offensive line is solid. Receivers are solid for the most part. Running back and Aaron Jones just resigned. Very talented running back. But the to me, the Packers missed a golden, golden opportunity to do what they do best. Uh, uh, draft talented players and kind of develop them on their own. So by not trading Aaron Rodgers at the trade uh, at the draft, by holding on to him past the draft, to me, they squandered a legitimate chance to get the biggest return for right now the MVP of the league. Because think about it, as soon as that news broke, and apparently, here, how Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch were talking, they made calls to the 49ers on Wednesday night before the draft. So at least within NFL circles, it was leaked out earlier than it was leaked out to the public that Aaron Rodgers was disgruntled, Aaron Rodgers wanted out of Green Bay. So before that kind of gets out and is rampant, you have a chance for the Packers to get out ahead of it and trade him. And maybe because it's not known Aaron Rodgers' feelings, you can get a little bit more back in return. Not to mention, you trade him on draft night, you get a legitimate chance to get a serious, serious haul. We just talked about the 49ers. They, I mean, they openly said they made a call to Green Bay to see, hey, what's the deal with Aaron Rodgers? Is he available? You got to assume the number three pick was on the table if a trade or if a trade was to go down. Denver has been very aggressive. They are kind of the popular team now that seemingly is going to be the most aggressive and is a favorite 
to land Aaron Rodgers. Well, they had the number nine pick. I'm sure that would be included in a draft day deal. Panthers at number eight. They, they say they're committed to Sam Darnold. They took J.C. Horn. Instead of taking Justin Fields in the draft at number eight, they, I'm, I'm sure, would have been in on the conversation. The Washington football team, plenty of teams could have been interested in Aaron Rodgers with draft capital and with high draft picks. So you, the Packers could have easily gotten a top 10 pick in the 2021 draft immediately and you know, put some talent on that team. I mean, think about it. If they choose the 49ers, you could have added Kyle Pitts to this offense for when Jordan Love plays, let's say, in 2022. You don't think he could have benefited from throwing the ball to Kyle Pitts? He could have had a stud, stud tight end before he even takes a snap. So now, honestly, when you look at it, let's say the Packers do trade Aaron Rodgers this offseason, right? Let's say after June 1, because that's when the salary cap hit for the Packers really does ease up. If they trade him on June 5th or June 10th to wherever, the Broncos, the Panthers, whatever team wants to be in the mix. I'll ask you this question. What are the odds that an Aaron Rodgers quarterback team finishes in the top 10 of a draft? Personally, I don't think very high. So if you trade him to, let's say, Denver for three first-round picks, the odds that any of those three first-round picks you get back from the Broncos being top 10 are slim. But if you trade him on draft night to the Broncos, well, there's the number nine pick right there. Trade him to the 49ers at three. There's the number three pick right there. You had a legitimate chance to get a top 10 talent on this roster for the Packers in 2021 and beyond if you traded Rodgers for draft night. Instead, they waited. They didn't do it. They were headstrong. They were saying, hey, we're going to fix this. Now it seems like that's not going to be the case. And wherever you trade Aaron Rodgers, the draft picks are going to be a lot lower because obviously you're going to have Rodgers there for a full year. And unless barring a major drop-off that we don't see coming, He's going to be pretty damn good for the next few years. Playoffs, maybe even a Super Bowl. So you're going to get lower picks than you could have gotten this year. Not to mention, let's also just look at what Jordan Love is walking into, right? I think the, the Packers should have taken a book out of what the Patriots are doing. Here's what I mean by that. So right now, obviously, Aaron Rodgers is in Green Bay. Let's, let's just say, let's say the crazy, the unexpected, to me, the, the last situation that ever would come true happens. Let's say Aaron Rodgers returns to Green Bay in 2021, doesn't get a new deal, basically comes back with the way the deal is now, plays one last year in Green Bay in 2021, then he's, then he's traded somewhere else in the offseason. Well, if that happens, you are going from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers to Jordan Love. That is a ton of pressure on a guy that really none of us know anything about. He is a project. He was... I mean, a guy that was borderline first round in part because he was so raw in the draft that if the Packers don't develop in the correct way or just throw him out on the field, you have such a short window to figure out what you got. The pressure is already high. Now it's even higher because now the last thing Packers fans remember is Aaron Rodgers playing the top of his game, playing some of the best football. To where if you traded Aaron Rodgers this offseason at the draft, let's say, and they got a placeholder. Let's say they trade him to Denver and they got Teddy Bridgewater back, or you trade into San Francisco and you get Jimmy G back. There is some sort of placeholder in place that is starting in 2021 for the Packers. That's not Jordan Love. So guess what? It kind of breaks up slightly, but kind of breaks up the Favre, Rodgers, Love, bing, bang, boom, quarterback. And at least me personally, I think it does take a little bit of pressure off because at least you have a year, a buffer year, 
to get over Aaron Rodgers, to get over the play that he, you know, the level of play that he rose to that Packers fans are so accustomed to seeing week in and week out, that's an extremely high standard for any quarterback to live up to, let alone a guy making, you know, his debut, if you will, in year number three in Jordan Love. To where, hey, if now Jordan Love is coming in in 2022, he's replacing Jimmy G or Derek Carr or Teddy Bridgewater. Well, now the bar is not as high because it's like, hey, this all this guy has to do is just be better than Teddy Bridgewater. Man, that was tough watching Bridgewater in 2021. Let's get Jordan Love in here. Let's see how he is. I do personally think the bar is lower for Jordan Love in 2022 from the fan base's perspective if you have a stopgap quarterback that's not Aaron Rodgers playing in 2021. To me, I think the expectation for fans is a lot higher if it's Favre, Rodgers, Love compared to Favre, Rodgers, Bridgewater, Jimmy G, Derek Carr, then Jordan Love. I mean, look at it, look at it right now in New England. You had Tom Brady there for two decades, the model of success. Super Bowl after Super Bowl after winning season after division title after playoff appearance after AFC title game appearance. One hour, as we know, that didn't happen in 2020. Cam Newton was the starter. And now they draft Mac Jones. To me, the bar is lower for Mac Jones because, hey, you saw Cam Newton struggle for a year. It wasn't fun to watch. It wasn't Tom Brady. I do think the bar is a little bit lower because, hey, all he has to do in year one is be better than Cam Newton. That's all. Maybe legacy-wise down the line, if you look at Mac Jones' career, let's say he only wins one Super Bowl, never gets there. Maybe that's when the debate of Mac Jones versus Brady is there. Also, it's an unreal standard. Also, fans are unreal. So to me, at least, in my mind, it's less pressure for Jordan Love to come in and replace Teddy Bridgewater or whoever you want to bring in as a stopgap quarterback in 2021 than it is to go from Favre to Rodgers to Love. So to me... That's why the Packers made a big-time mistake in holding on to Aaron Rodgers before or during the draft. Because it doesn't make any sense. You're going to trade Rodgers, worst-case scenario, after this year at the very latest. You've got to get Jordan Love on the field in 2022. Might as well rip the Band-Aid off now. Get the most you can, re- you know, most return you possibly could get. Get a top 10, top 5, top 3 pick, potentially, to infuse this roster with even more talent. To give Jordan Love the absolute best chance he has to succeed. That's why it was, to me, so confusing. It didn't make any sense because it goes against everything the Packers are telling you they're trying to do and get ready for the future. They had a major opportunity to get a ton of assets for the future and instead said, ah, we're good. We're going to roll with Rodgers. We're going to try to keep Aaron Rodgers now and maybe light this Jordan Love pick on fire. I don't know the direction the Packers are trying to go in. I really don't. To me, it made the most sense for them. Trade Aaron Rodgers, usher in the Jordan Love era, and give Love everything possible to succeed. Instead, they didn't do that. Now it's created more drama. You've potentially hurt the development of Jordan Love. And to me, you made it that much harder for him to succeed. So love to your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Did the Packers make a big mistake in your mind by not trading Aaron Rodgers at the trade uh, at the draft? I keep saying at the trade deadline at the draft, or or do you think this is going to work out? Do you think Aaron Rodgers will be in Green Bay for 2021 and beyond, and they are making the right move in trying to work things out with their franchise quarterback? So, love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter 
WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. When we come back, we'll get your thoughts. And also, more cheating has gone down in sports. The Astros, the Patriots, and now a horse. So I'm curious, how do you view cheating in sports? Does it bother you? Is it a big-time issue? How do, you, how do you view it? How do you react to it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll get into cheating in sports next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Another song that's been on the Ryan Hickey playlist, if you will, the last week. Another song, just like the Macarena, in case you missed it earlier, that really kind of puts an extra pep in your step, you know? Kind of gets you grooving. So we're going to, you know, we're here to uplift. We're here for some good times, hopefully. That's, that's always the kind of the goal of the show here. Put you in a good mood. Hopefully give you some entertainment. Talk some sports. So why not have the music reflect that? Played the Macarena earlier. Let's get a bang on my drum all day as well. Let's get, you know, let's get some, some good vibes rolling here, if you will. So welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports. Right Eric, some news about LeBron James on the injury front. Good news if you're a Lakers fan and good news for the NBA. We talked to the Lakers early on in the show. A lot of questions concerning their health, their continuity, the playoff schedule is going to be grueling. Well, according to Yahoo Sports, it looks like LeBron James has had a, a few good days of practice in a row. Chris Haynes is the one that's reporting this. Um, looks like he's going to return LeBron James to the lineup either tomorrow night against the Knicks, hopefully not, or Wednesday against the Rockets. So LeBron James will be back this week in the lineup either Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll see how I guess how he feels, how he progresses. Apparently, according to, again, Chris Haynes had two, quote, really good days of workouts at a high level and also feels, quote, unquote, great. So obviously, as we know, LeBron trying to work back to that ankle, missed six weeks with the ankle sprain, returned for two games, couldn't even finish the second game against the Raptors last Sunday. He, he missed the second half of the fourth quarter to rest it and hasn't really played since, so missed a week. That'd be about a week and a half or so just about before he does return for a few more games left on the schedule before the Lakers get ready for the playoffs. We'll, we'll circle back there in a second. And, you know, about 20 minutes or so to give you my thoughts in case you missed it to start the show, but the Lakers and if they can repeat what they did in 2020 down there in the bubble. But I do want to kind of hit on cheating in sports and kind of how you view it, how, how you feel about it. Because at least yesterday, the, the latest scandal in sports, if you will, came in horse racing. Now, I'll be honest here. I'm not a massive horse racing fan. I bet on the race, did not win. Now, it seems like Medina Spear was busted for PEDs. This could mean that uh, the win by Medina Spear is now invalid. It doesn't matter. It didn't have the second place finisher. So for those of you who did, I'm not sure if that means you get, you know, you get your money. Hopefully, that means you're cashing tickets for those of you who won. Maybe burn those receipts and kind of spend the money before, before your uh, bookie or sports book maybe comes back to uh, get that money back. But Medina Spirit, busted for PEDs. Bob Baffert now um, suspended from entering any horse in the Churchill Downs race. There is an appeal going on, so we'll see. You know what happens if, if the blood sample turns back that maybe he says it was invalid and there was no PEDs in the horse's system. But really, this is now the fifth horse that Bob Baffert has trained within the last year. That has failed the drug test. 
So obviously cheating with Bob Baffert, the trainer, very well, uh, world-renowned trainer, is rampant within the horse racing world. But obviously, as we know, cheating is not just in horse racing. It's really in all sports. And we've seen it come to light here in many different instances in all different sports. So I'm curious, how do you feel about it? Like, is it a one-strike-and-done-for-you to where, hey, someone cheats, whether it's a team, whether it's a player, they are done, don't give them a second chance, no third chances, ban them for life, can't look at them the same way? Or not can you look past it, that's, I feel like, a little unfair wording, but can you understand it, maybe accept it? Because honestly, for me, I'll be honest here, I do think cheaters should be punished 100%, a very harsh penalty, I'm not saying let them off. Cheaters, you still should be looking for them. Still 100% should be punching them, punching them the harsh way. But I'll be honest here, I have a tough time getting upset at players, getting upset at teams that cheat. I am not one of those guys that say, wipe them out of the record books. I'm not one of those guys that say, ban them for life. Honestly, not that I, I do understand it to a fault. And more than that, honestly, the biggest thing for me is that maybe I'm just cynical Maybe this is just me kind of being negative or looking at the glass half empty. But I truly do believe there is way more cheating in all sports than we truly realize. I think it's way more prevalent than we actually think. And obviously, we know the ones who get caught are the ones that you know are on blast. Oh, man, what an idiot. Look at this guy, Juicing. Look at this team in baseball stealing signs. For the most part, I don't think the players and the teams that get caught cheating in all different kinds of sports are isolated. That they're the only ones doing it. They're only the ones that got caught. Because you think about it, look how much pressure, look how much money there is now in sports. We put a lot of money in gambling. We put a lot of money in merchandise sales and attendance and social media attention to those teams, those players who win. So now that kind of leads to Everyone looking for some sort of edge to try to give themselves the best chance to win. And unfortunately, as we know, a lot of those edges kind of do cut corners in the rule books. So when you look at teams, let's say, like, like the Astros, right? And even the Red Sox, because they were also busted for, for sign stealing in their own way. Astros, Red Sox, the Patriots, those are obviously the big teams that got caught cheating in their respective sports. But look, I'll be honest. When the Red Sox scandal came down in 2018, when, when that athletic, great job by Alan Drellick, uh, Evan Drellick, excuse me, Dr- uh, great job by Ken Rosenthal, really going to the source, getting to the bottom of all this cheating that happened with the Astros, and, and basically alerting the public and everyone else that, hey, this 2017 team was doing things illegally that no one else was doing. This is where my brain went after kind of reading everything. The Astros obviously kind of pushed the limits, and they went probably further than any other team did. But at the same time, do, do I actually honestly think that the Astros were the only team sealing signs in one aspect or another? I don't. I think every, t- every team has their own sort of situation to do it. It has their own way of doing so. And maybe the Astros was the most egregious, most obvious. But I do think that every team in baseball is trying somehow to gain an edge, whether it's sign sealing, whether it's picking up on tendencies, and skirting the rules to do so. I mean, you, you read the athletic pieces. Basically, MLB was begging, begging teams to cheat. They have video rooms that every team has access to in-game. No one's really monitoring it. So, yeah, when you have cameras, like, you know, with the center field camera we see sometimes, they'll, they'll flash to the catcher, fla- putting down signs. We see it at home. 
Well, you don't think the players see it? You don't think that they can find a way to, hey, hey, man, if Johnny knows a fastball is coming here, that would be really good for us, right? First and second. Man, if he knows a fastball is coming, he could really do some real damage here and gives us a chance to win. So I think the Astros were the ones who got caught and the Red Sox were the ones who got caught, but I don't believe they were the only two teams doing it. I think way more teams, not every team in baseball, was doing something one way or another that maybe hurts the integrity of the game, maybe wasn't exactly following the rules to the letter of the law. Patriots, same thing. Spygate, Deflategate. To me, they're not the only team that is trying to gain an edge one way or another and skirting the rule, but to do so. I mean, in college sports, now we're finally getting momentum, at least it seems, for players allowing to benefit off their name, image, and likeness, right? Now you could finally get money for being Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M or Tim Tebow at Florida or Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. Now fans or now those players at big-time programs that are at the top of their game, they can actually make money for who they are, just like every other student. If you are a great violin player, if you are a, a smart engineer in college, people can pay you to do things. Except athletes. Now, finally, finally, we are coming in the 21st century with that. But before that, athletes can make zero money. So you don't think that teams are paying Trevor Lawrence to go to Clemson? Or you don't think that big-time basketball recruits are going to Duke like Zion Williamson just going to Duke for the love of the game? Every big-time, not even, every college basketball program, I'm going to assume, pays players to come there one way or another. Whether you are the number one recruit or whether you're the number 400 recruit. There's always something there to help attract you, to give yourself, your team, your program, some sort of extra incentive to get a player there. So college football, college basketball, I 100% think most, if not all teams, are paying players to come there one way or another. Naive to think that, hey, only the ones that got caught, only the ones that were in the HBO documentary about those four assistant coaches that were jailed and, and prosecuted for kind of funneling money one way to recruits. I'm not naive to think that, hey, Rick Pitino is the only coach, you know, breaking the rules or looking the other way when assistants, in his mind, are doing rogue activities. It happens everywhere. So I have a tough time getting frustrated, getting really worked up about a team getting caught for cheating when I truly do think it's happening everywhere else we just, or, and we're just not seeing it. They're just not getting caught. So when it comes to like baseball, Barry Bonds, Kurt Schillen, Alex Rodriguez, I'd put them all in the Hall of Fame. Now, if you want to kind of put a, a wing or put an asterisk there, fine. I have no problem with that. To designate that, hey, these guys were caught cheating. But to think that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling and Alex Rodriguez were the only players using steroids in their time, to me, is just asinine. It doesn't make any sense. Your head's buried in the sand. So if you really either want to dig up everyone's you know, skeletons, go look at everyone's closet that's in the Hall of Fame and basically say, hey, was there some stuff going on or not? And just try to basically kick out everyone that has even questions. If you're not going to do that, then you can't just punish the few people that actually got caught without kind of recognizing that, hey, it was the error that they were in and there was way more people doing it than we actually think. So to me, cheating is just a product of trying to win at all costs. Doing whatever it takes to win. And I personally just have a hard time getting frustrated, getting upset with that. For example, here it's even small things, right? I'm a big Mets fan in case you couldn't tell. So I was watching the game, I think it was Saturday night. One of their pitchers, Joey Lucchesi, 
not a great pitcher coming in from the bullpen. And so because he's a new pitcher, you know, the, the camera's panning on him and he's getting warmed up on, on the mound and they're talking about his stats for the, the 2021 season. And you can kind of see as he's getting ready, he is grabbing the outside of his glove, gla- grabbing it in like a way that all right, you're not just kind of grabbing your glove to put it on tightly. You are just, you were trying to get something off. And it just, to me, it was kind of obvious there was some sort of pine tar or something on there that he's trying to get on his fingers to give himself an edge. And it's like, all right, well, the camera's right there inadvertently just catching him doing something that's technically against the rules. Like, you remember, you have Trevor Barrow have baseballs taken out of play in one of his starts earlier this year because they were suspect that there was, you know, some sort of substance on it and they were looking at it. Still haven't heard anything by that, about that, by the way, which is interesting. When baseball is trying to do a better job of cracking down on players, especially pitchers, using foreign substances to help them get a grip on the baseball, spin rate uh, become higher, and just give themselves more of an advantage. But we're looking at it blindly. Like, Brian Daly here is one of the Mets pitchers grabbing onto his glove in an obvious way that he is trying to get something on. But it's like, am I supposed to be outraged? Am I supposed to be throwing my hands up and saying, kick this guy out of the game, kick him out of the league? And to me, I just have, honestly, a tough time crucifying these guys and these teams that get caught cheating because I just think it's way more rampant than we actually realize, than we actually see on the surface. There's a lot that goes on behind closed doors, behind the surface, that to me at least has every team doing something. Something. Maybe sometimes, obviously minimal. Other teams push the line way more um, than others. I just have a tough time kind of sitting here getting outraged, getting frustrated, saying, get him out of here permanently. Erase him from the history books. Never let them play the sport again. I just am not one of those guys. So we're seeing now a lot of outrage towards Bob Baffert because yet another horse of his that he's trained test positive in Medina spirit. Now it seems like the Kentucky Derby winner will be invalidated. You have more controversy uh, surrounding him. Obviously you have the Astros now kind of for the first time playing in front of fans. The Yankee Stadium atmosphere last week was incredible. I give the Yankees fans a lot of credit. That was awesome and a lot of fun to watch. They were loud. They were booing. Had a playoff-like atmosphere. And Parker's, that was the first time Yankee fans could actually face the Astros for their cheating scandal. But look, I'll be honest. If I go to a, a Mets-Astros game, I'm not bringing trash cans. I'm not taunting Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa and, and Alex Bregman. And Parker's, I truly think one way or another, every other team is doing something similar. The Astros were the one they got caught. They were the one maybe pushing the line a little bit more than others. But I do think it's way more prevalent in sports than we realize. So I have a tough time personally getting upset, getting outraged than others. So I'm curious your thoughts. How do you feel? Because I think I think I actually am in the minority. I do think I'm in the minority in thinking this where a lot of people will get outraged, get frustrated, kick him out of the league, you know, one and done, no second chances, no third chances, erase it from the history books. I do think I'm in the minority of not accepting it, but just understanding it, I'll say. Understanding teams and players pushing the line and kind of stepping over it in order to gain an advantage. So if you think I'm wrong, I'd love to know why. I'd love to know why um, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. love to hear your thoughts. And when we come back, there's I want to bring some social media light here to the show. There's an account I follow, Down Bad. If you don't know what it is, I'll tell you what it is, but it's a pretty funny account. I think there are a few players and teams in sports over the weekend you can say were down bad. We'll explain when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back Welcome to the back Ryan Hickey, Hickey Show. Show. 
right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here for a few more minutes going until 11 a.m. Eastern. Figure we're going to play a little circus music here because we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to try to have some fun. Kind of doing this for the first time. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it goes well. And we'll try to make it bigger and better. But one thing I do want to kind of hit on here is at least an account that I follow on social media that cracks you up every time. Is this account called Down Bad? Now, if you haven't heard of it or if you don't know what Down Bad means, no problem. We will explain it to you. So, Down Bad is this account where it basically highlights mostly guys, but sometimes girls as well, who are just down bad. Whether it's getting rejected, mostly getting rejected, actually, trying to make advances. Hey, you want to go on a date? Hey, you want to be my girlfriend? Usually, it is just funny screenshots of rejection. For example, there's one over the weekend that just killed me. So this guy and this girl are messaging, and this girl, you know, messages this guy, hey, you know, I'm talking to this really cute guy, things are going great, and the guy messages back, oh, like, do, do I know who he is, haha, <laughs> kind of like, you know, joking around, because he thinks she's talking about him, and she goes, oh, yeah, actually, you know, it's this guy, Jake, I think you, think you know him, and the guy goes, oh, cool, because <laughs> she was serious, but not talking about him, so just small things where it's like down bad, where you get your hopes up, things are looking in the right direction, and whether it's a lame excuse, whether it's just kind of being led astray, there are plenty of people that are just down bad. So I figured, you know, why don't we bring that to sports? Why don't we, we bring social media and put it to sports? Because there's a few teams, there's a few players that this weekend, just down bad. So let's get into it. Team, the Cleveland Indians, they, I think, in baseball terms, you would say are down bad. Now, in case you missed out over the weekend, Wade Miley of the Reds no-hit the Indians. Through a no-hitter, also for Wade Miley, history. Now, why are the Indians down bad? Especially, too, we're seeing now this is the fourth official no-hitter. Fifth, if you want to count, and I'm counting it, Madison Baumgartner's 7 inning no-hitter he threw against the Braves. There have been already incredible, incredible dominance by the pitchers over the hitters. Hitting is down everywhere, so it's not crazy. It's not outlandish. Now, the Indians got no hit, right? Okay, this, it's crazy thing. It's almost becoming the norm now. Insane to think, but now no hitters are becoming more and more popular this season. It's not crazy to think when you hear, all right, team got no hit. Well, here's why the Indians are, no, are, are down bad. This was the second time this season, second time that they were no hit. We were just a month and a week into the season. Not even six weeks in, the Indians have been no hit now twice. Carlos Rodon of the White Sox did a few weeks ago. Now Wade Miley on Friday night. No team in that history, by the way. Now, now the Indians, you're on history watch for all the wrong reasons. No team in major history has ever been no hit three times in one season. When you look at the Indians, man, their hitting is down bad. 29th in batting average, 29th in on-base percentage. Obviously, it doesn't help when you trade away your best player, Francisco Lindor, to the Mets. Thank you very much. As a Mets fan, I will uh, take that 10 out of 10 times. But this Indians team is down bad. Tough year. You sell away some of the best pieces on the team. And now you get no hit in the span, twice in the span of almost five weeks. Down bad. And now they have history to watch going forward as to not get no hit a third time and join a club exclusively onto their own. So the Cleveland Indians getting hit no, uh, getting no hit twice in the first month of the season. They are 
down bad. How about Max Scherzer? This poor guy. Now, if you look at the box score or you watch the game on Saturday, the Nats play the Yankees, you say, well, why is Max Scherzer on this list? The guy was dominant. Pitched Yankee Stadium, 14 strikeouts through seven and a third innings. Two hits he allowed, just one earned run. That's right. Seven and a third, two hits, one earned run, 14 strikeouts, which is the new Yankee Stadium, the one that opened since 2009, a new Yankee Stadium record for an opposing pitcher. What do you think? Oh, that's really good. Why is he on the down bad list? Now, again, down bad is for those, it's not a good thing, it's a bad thing. This guy sounds like he did something really good. Well, here's why Max Scherzer is down bad. Not him specifically, because he pitched a great game, but the Nationals let him down. Max Scherzer was degromed. Max Scherzer pitches a gem, does it on his own, and instead the team repays him by blowing it. No pitcher should get a no decision after going seven and a third, two hits, one run, run, 14 strikeouts. But that is what happened. He got to ground because the bullpen blows it in the ninth inning, gives up the lead, blows it again in the 10th inning after getting another lead, and eventually the, the Nationals do lose to the Yankees in 11 innings. Absolute dominant performance by Max Scherzer goes for not. Doesn't get the credit he deserves because he won't get the win and the team actually gets the loss. So Max Scherzer, listen, I've seen it a million times with Jacob DeGrom where he just dominates for seven innings, dominates for eight innings, and either the offense doesn't score many runs or the bullpen, when they do score runs, comes in and blows it. Max Scherzer got DeGrom a great outing. Unfortunately for him, doesn't result in the win. Nothing, nothing his doing, but you should definitely get rewarded for a performance like that. That's why it's me and Max Scherzer down bad. How about just dudes? Dudes everywhere. Me, you, any guy with some manhood hanging out. They are down bad. Because in case you missed it, two separate times over the weekend did guys get hit in uncomfortable places where they shouldn't be getting hit. And it was painful to watch. So Mookie Betts, right? obviously Dodgers star, had a slow start to the season. He's finally starting to break out of his early season slump. He's getting on base. He's hitting better. Now, the Dodgers as a team are still slumping. They lost their fifth straight series, this time to the Angels over the weekend. But Mookie Betts is seemingly starting to now come out of it. Well, now the issue is, every time or anytime Mookie Betts gets on base, now it's like, eh, do you really want to be on base? Because over the weekend on Saturday night, he's on third base. Slow grounded on the third baseline. Now, Mookie Betts is kind of taking his lead. Now he has to, all right, I got to run back before I get tagged out. Well, the Angels' third baseman fields the ball, tries to go for a quick tag to get Mookie Betts out. The only problem is his glove, because it's so quick, catches it and goes straight up. Well, straight up is where Mookie Betts' manhood is. Boom, tapped right there. Right in the nuts, goes right to the ground immediately. Down to the ground, writhing in pain. Funny to watch for someone who's not getting hit in the nuts themselves. But you feel the pain, guys everywhere. Feel what he, you know, feel the pain he's in right now. So even when Mookie Betts, uh, Mookie Betts now is on base and producing, he's still losing. But that wasn't it. Colin Sexton, guard for the Cavs. He was playing the Mavs last night. Him and Luka Doncic are kind of fighting down low, fighting for post position. Sexton kind of gives Luka a little bit of a bump. Luka comes back, swings his hand down, and gets a direct shot. Tough, tough, tough weekend. For Mookie Betts, for Colin Sexton. Two guys that, hey, even when you're doing the right thing, even when you get good box out position for Colin Sexton, even if you're getting on pace if you're Mookie Betts, you don't get rewarded for it because you're getting hit in a tough spot. 
And that gets replayed all weekend long. Those two guys are down bad. And finally, finally here, one, one last one, non-sports related, but craziness to where if I was in the situation, if you were in the situation, we would be called, we would definitely be down bad. So as you saw, it kind of circulated late last time. I was on Twitter around 10 or 11 Eastern before I'm going to bed. I saw this circulating. So there was a tiger on the loose in Houston. That's right. A neighborhood, there was a tiger on the loose. Now, I guess the backstory is someone in Houston owns the tiger. Classic Texas, by the way. And the tiger gets out. So the video is only about 30 seconds to a minute long. The video is out there of this tiger in someone's front yard walking across the street now. And on the other side, in another lawn, is a guy standing there. And he's kind of like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you see a bear in the forest and you're supposed to kind of freeze up and not move. Well, that's what this guy is doing. Apparently, it looked like, hard to tell from the video, but I think a few tweets below it showed the guy had a gun. So this guy is pointing a gun at a freaking loose tiger in the middle of the suburbs of Houston. You have, I guess, the, the owner of the tiger screaming on the front lawn, hey, don't shoot him, I'll take him away. Could you imagine kind of just walking around the neighborhood, all of a sudden, other side of the street, there was a tiger just roaming the streets. I mean, listen, I, it's easy to say, like, and it's easy to hear advice. Hey, there's a bear, lay there, play dead, he'll leave you alone. Instinct, every instinct in my brain is saying, run the other way. And guess what? I'm not doing I am not standing still. There is zero shot in hell. I am standing there, calm as a cucumber, letting this tiger walk up to me, walk close to me. And the worst part is, you know, as soon as you run, the tiger's going to catch you in two seconds. I have no clue how this guy was able to stay so calm. Now, eventually, it looks like this morning, I circled back to the story. It looks like the tiger did go to the owner. It was not shot. The guy was not harmed in getting uh, bit or attacked. And apparently, the guy, seemingly, I guess it's illegal, drove off with the tiger in his car. We don't know if Houston has got him or not, but just imagine. Nice Sunday stroll down the block. Joined the nice night. It looked like it was in Houston. And all of a sudden... You are supposed to stand there because a freaking tiger is across the street coming towards you. Insanity. That poor guy, well, he could have been down really bad. Just down bad, we'll say, just for being in that situation. So if you have any submissions, this is, you know, we'll do it here and there. We won't do it, I think, every show or every Monday. We won't make it a staple too much where we'll make it a benchmark every week. But I think it's when it's worthy, when there's things that we see, Definitely worth doing. So, hey, you know what? If you if you like this segment, hopefully it was, it was enjoyable. Maybe we'll get video now because now I kind of figured out a way to do video. So we'll get some video to show you in case you missed it. So if you like Down Bad, any submissions, please reach out. Tweet the show at Ryan Hickey Show when we're not on the air at WWSRN underscore radio. Um, we will love submissions um, for teams and players that are just down bad. So do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. I really appreciate you, all of you who tuned in on this Monday morning to start your week with us. Again, a belated happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. Hopefully you had a very fun and celebratory day with your mom yesterday. Have a great, great rest of the week. We will talk to you on Thursday, as we always do, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network.